Uh, I want to ask you a question in my title today. Do you know who you are? And many of you are fishing for your driver's license. It won't help you. Quite a number of years ago, the magazine Newsweek poked some fun at the U.S. National Census with a silly little piece of poetry, and they, they asked this. Give your name and age in business. Is your husband working? Do you rent or own the building? Did you ever milk a cow? This is strictly confidential. Are you underweight or fat? Does your husband have a bunion? Are his arches good or flat? Did you vote for Herbert Hoover? Are you dry or are you wet? Did you ever use tobacco? Did you ever place a bet? Are you saving any money? Do you ever pay your debt? Now, I doubt that statisticians really ask those kinds of questions, especially about the bunions on the feet of husbands. But the U.S. Census does ask about the state of our arches, and in the population of the U.S., three million arches are either flat or fallen, just if you're taking notes. They can expound on life. They can expound on the quality of life. They can expound on death. The senses will tell us about the causes of death. They can analyze sexuality and birth and divorce and income and crime and your eating habits. And as a result, in people who live in countries where there are active census data being kept, then we know more about ourselves than ever before. And if there's a piece of information you want, and believe me, I've gone looking, you can generally find it. Yet I find that people are still confused about who, who they are. We have a great deal of confusion about roles. Personal identity is a conflicted piece of 21st century life. Approached by a fan on one occasion, a man was asked, are you P Peter Sellers? And P Peter Sellers, being a very famous actor, answered very briskly, not today, and walked on. You see, the church has been experiencing an identity crisis. And maybe our entire world has. And maybe some of our deeper problems are related to the fact that we don't really know who we are. If the Bible is really the source of authoritative truth, and I claim it is. The Bible is my source of authority. I don't have any other documentary evidence that I can appeal to. I don't have a higher source of authority than the Bible and for the God who reveals himself in it. It's to the scriptures that we probably should turn this morning for an estimate, or at least an indication of who we actually are. And I find it spelled out kind of nicely. First John 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1 to 3 says this, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, and here's the identity issue, that we should be called children of God. Here's identity. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are the children of God, and what we will be 
has not yet been made known. But we know when he appears, we shall be like him. Want to know what your future is like? When he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Amen. Every person is rightly a creation of God, a creature. But only those who have received divine grace can be called a child of God. Only then does God really become your father. And how do I know that's true? Well, Romans 8, chapter 14, or Romans 8 and verse 14 says this. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself, that's the indwelling Spirit in each of us, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs co with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. Now, let me make a deduction from what I've said so far this morning. We can only know who we are if we become, if we know who God is. And we can only know who God is if we've met Christ. And that involves more than just being in a pew on any given Sunday or day of the week or putting offering into a plate or being a good citizen. The world Jesus entered more than two millennia ago did not recognize him at all. The Romans knew only one way to deal with the problem and they would eliminate it. So they killed Jesus. We're far more sophisticated these, these days. We would probably not kill Jesus. We would ignore him. Or we'd smother him so badly in bad legislation. And it's too bad that in the process of doing that, we kill, we kill ourselves. Maybe you've not wondered this, but let me sow the question into your mind. Have you ever wondered why a child of God lives in somewhat a state of tension? It seems every single day we have to confront something. And so please understand something this morning. Identity, who we are, impacts our values. The cross is a straight and narrow bridge, bridge to God. Access to heaven means access to eternity eventually. And eternity with God needs to be the greatest value that we hold. It's been purchased with the greatest price. Every Sunday, the communion table is before us. We use it, we use it occasionally, but the communion table always reminds me of how great the price was. A friend of mine has a, has a wonderful bumper sticker on his vehicle. He's got a little SUV, and I don't know whether the police recognize what he's got written or not. But it says, God allows U-turns, even when the government doesn't. It's such truth. God designed humanity's U-turn from the brink of destruction to the presence of Almighty God. And the cross was the means of allowing us to about face and go in an opposite direction. And so your tension and mine, and, and I know you must feel it, 
The tension you feel in life is because your direction has changed. And the direction you used to go in is really not the easiest direction to to travel in if you look at results. But the new direction you have will be even tougher because you're going against the natural progress of what this world sees. The church flows against the natural current of the time in which we live. It is not exactly going the same way society is going or the same way government is going or the same way many other groups are going. The world exerts a pull on us that says you're going the wrong way and we're going the right way. Get back into the flow of things. As someone said that there's only the dead fish who float down, downstream. To some degree, the business world and the church have an uneasy alliance. There are some branches of the church that would make going to church like a shopping mall or going to a convenience store. Business is about the work of dispensing a product for human consumption and human pleasure and somewhere in there make a profit. And that's the depth of the identity crisis right there. There are branches of the church today and philosophies within the church that have left a straight and narrow understanding of the gospel and tried to run the church on a shopping mall mentality that encourages people to do just this, to browse the racks and browse the shelves, take all of the elements of a spiritual life that might appeal to them, but leave the rest of it behind. You see, the gifts that God gives us for our use to create a good identity are not commodities or products to be picked up only if we feel like it but they're redemptive necessities. The things that God provides are closely aligned to the will of God, and so to have them is essential. There's some scriptural clues to identity. Let me give you a couple of of them this morning. John chapter 13 and 34. A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this, there's an identity issue. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. We're known, we're known for that kind of posture. First Peter chapter 2 tells us something about ourselves. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And sacrifices will always cost us something. And I'm not talking talking money, although it won't exclude that. 1 Peter 2 and 9 tells us a little more about ourselves. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. More clues as to who we are. You see, before we are Baptists here, or wear any kind of denominational tag, because there are many different denominations among us, before we have a religious designation, some people would call me an evangelical, although I've been called a whole lot worse. Before I'm even identified within a broad category of being Christian, Before any of that, you are the beloved of God. 
You're the objects of God's love, the objects of his grace. In other parts of scripture, the identity becomes clearer. We are told we are the bride of Christ for whom Christ gave his life. We're the heirs of salvation. We are the redeemed of the Lord. We are those who have been called out of darkness into light. You see, we really need to make these statements because there's a whole lot that passes for Christianity that has no essential resemblance to what Jesus intended. You need to check the mirror once in a while. A few years ago, two men wrote a book together entitled, some of you may have read it, Jim and Casper Go to Church. It's an unusual book by two very unusual and unlikely people. Let me tell you about the authors. Jim Henderson, one of the authors, had been a megachurch pastor and was director of a ministry called Off the Map, which stimulates spiritual discussions among people from all corners of the faith universe. Jim garnered national attention when he rented a soul for $504, that was his bid, he rented a soul for, on eBay after its owner said, I've got an open mind and I'll sell my open mind to the highest bidder. So Jim, Jim Henderson rented him. Interesting things you can get on e e e eBay at times. But in the book, Jim interacts with another unlikely person, an atheist named Matt Casper, a soul that he rented to take a nationwide road trip, mostly in the United States, and visiting a dozen of America's churches, including some churches that are very well, well known, and some of you might have attended them. They ended up going to Saddleback Church, where Rick Warren is the pastor, to Willow Creek, where Bill Hibbles is the pastor, and to Lakewood, where Joel Osteen is the pastor. They went to a number of lesser-known churches as well. And so Jim wanted to document the first impressions of a total non-believer inside of a Christian church. And he wanted to, uh, he wanted to open some, some very frank and intimate dialogue between an atheist and a believer helping us to see the church through the eyes of a skeptic. And so the book tracks the development of an amazing relationship between two men who have diametrically opposing views of the world, but agreed on only one thing, that would, they, they would respect each other's views. Now the promo of the book has this explanation. On their journey across America's churches, Matt Casper saw, saw, saw it all. Light shows, fog machines, worship bands, extended offerings, and of course a number of traditions that are observed in one church or another. At one point, his incredulity broke through, and he asked this question. Is this what Jesus told you guys to do? I use this picture because it might have been taken by my own son. Maybe it's when Switchfoot was in Newfoundland, but that's the band. It's, or it could have been taken by 
Dave and Carolyn's daughter, who shot a number of these events as well. Now, if you can handle such blunt challenges, you will find the book fast, fun, and fulfilling. It's a good read. Jim and Casper's articulate and sometimes humorous approach, always insightful conversations, offers Christians a new view of the environment in which we've become very, very comfortable, which is the local church. We sort of retreat into these kinds of places. And more than a decade later, Matt Casper's question has not left me. I think there's hardly a week that passes by that I'm not haunted by Matt Casper's question and I'm, pro I'm provoked by it as I look at the identity crisis that believers seem to have and the church seems, seems to have when the question comes out again, is this what Jesus told you guys to do? Look at most of what happens in the church world today and let Matt, Matt question Matt Casper's question permeate a little. Is what we do what Jesus told us guys to do? I hope there's a little bit of a sense of restlessness in your soul. I hope there's some questions being asked. I hope you feel the burning urgency of a quest to, prom to provoke this, the generation that we live among now with the life-changing message and a Christian experience that is charted by the purpose of God and led by the, by the power of the Spirit of God. Because we need to be able to answer that question well. And I think that's what Jesus told us to do. He told us to make sure our purpose is charted by Him and that the power source we use is His Spirit. Then you see, the new birth does something to us. You've probably figured this out already. It turns you into an alien. It turns you into a creature from another dimension. I won't look around too much because some wives are sneaking glances at their husbands now when I mention aliens and people from a different dimension. But Paul says we're pilgrims. We're people on our way to a distant destination and the world we live in is just a stopover. The walk of faith is always towards God, never away from Him. And if our citizenship is in heaven, as we sometimes quote the New Testament saying, then our level of comfort here should only be that of an emissary on some kind of a mission or on some kind of a purpose. For our foreign students and those in temporary positions, all Christians can say is that we have a temporary visa and could face recall to our true home at any time. We have a mission with a narrow window of opportunity because God's enlisted us with the great purpose to change this world one person at a time. We have important things on our agenda here at Cornerbrook Baptist. We have a strategic plan for this church that we review on a constant basis, but it all has to relate to our singular mission of delivering the message of Jesus Christ to every single person we possibly can, can come in contact with. That's what Jesus told us guys to do, and we move beyond personal identity to the church's identity. When the church mixes itself up in other things, it often becomes illegitimate. 
our identity in Christ should push us onward because the, the task is never done by staying the same. I was a hospital chaplain a few years ago. Same time I was a university chaplain. I visited the Jane the Janeway when it was down in Pleasantview, Pleasantville, quite a, quite a number of times. Prayed on numbers of occasions with tiny infants, some who were like this big. And I met some of those children later in life. Healthy, strapping boys and girls. It was amazing, but I actually played hockey with one of the little boys that I prayed for when he was just an infant with a heart defect. And it was always a, a marvelous thing to step on the ice with someone that I knew as a two-day-old in crisis. At the moment, I prayed for them. Here's my point. I didn't have any idea what they would become. I didn't have any idea even if God would be merciful. That's what I prayed for, and that's where my faith was, that God would be merciful and allow them to live. You see, none of us stop at the moment of birth. The incubator was never meant to be a permanent place for any human being. And I hope you see where I'm driving this. Because the child of God is like that too. This was John's wonderful moment of revelation to these people. Dear friends, now we are the children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Our identity today is earthly, is mortal, and outwardly we waste away. We look different than we did many years ago, despite the help we get with that. Every prayer request we've had this morning is proof of how fragile we are and how hostile our environment is. We pray because we must, because there are changes that take place in life that we we pit ourselves against and say, this is not good enough. We can't stay like this. We can't stay like we were at the time when Christ redeemed us. See, I understand the cosmic view of the church, and I see Jesus coming to destroy the greatest enemy that we've got. Just a few verses before the text I used this morning is John's expression of Jesus' mission. Let me read it for you because it's in good context. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in, in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go in sinning because he's been born of God. See, he, God can change your identity. And he does so in the moment that you come to him. But he not only changes our identity, he changes our destiny, but he also begins 
to form his mission inside of our lives. Let me illustrate it as I close this morning with this. Walking through the forest one day, a man found a young eagle who had fallen out of his nest. He took it home. And because he was a farmer, he put it in a barnyard where it soon learned to eat and behave like the chickens. One day, a naturalist passed by the farm and asked why it was that the king of all birds should be confined to live in the barnyard with the chickens. The farmer replied that since he had given it chicken feed and trained it to be a chicken, it had never learned to fly. And since it now behaved as the chickens, it was no longer an eagle. The naturalist could see the plumage. He could see it was an eagle. Sounds crazy because you know what's going through some of your minds now. How can you fly among the eagles when you work among the turkeys, right? But the naturalist replied, still it has the heart of an eagle and can surely be taught to fly. And so he lifted the eagle towards the sky and gave him a big speech. He said, you belong to the sky and not to the earth. Stretch forth your wings and fly. The eagle was confused. He didn't know who he was. And seeing the chickens eating their food, he jumped down to be with the chickens again. The naturalist took the bird to the roof of the house and urged him again, You're an eagle. Stretch forth your wings and fly. But the eagle was afraid of his unknown self and jumped down once more for the chicken feed. Finally, the naturalist took the eagle out of the barnyard to a high mountain and there he held the king of the birds high above him and encouraged him again. And maybe the, he was beginning to learn who, who he was. You are an eagle. You belong to the sky. Stretch forth your wings and fly. And the eagle looked around, back towards the barnyard, and up to the sky. And then the naturalist lifted him straight towards the sun, and the eagle began to tremble. And slowly he stretched his majestic wings, and with a, triumph a triumphant cry, he soared into the heavens. Now it may be that the eagle still remembers the chickens with a little bit of nostalgia. It may be that he misses the food once in a while. And it probably would be true that he might even visit the barnyard once in, once in a while. He might even steal a chicken if he's become a true, a true eagle. But as far as anyone knows, the naturalist reports that he's never learned to lead the life of a chicken. He left it. Now I know you get the message from the illustration. And the summary for us this morning is that once we know who we are, once we grow into being the person God wants us to be, then the message to us is to go. is to spread our wings as Christians and fly a little. Jesus says, said so often, I've come to set you free. He tells us that we have a, the abundant kind of freedom, abundant life. He tells us he whom the sun sets free is free indeed. We were not designed as Christians to, to just to peck out an existence at a barnyard level until we die. There's more to the Christian life than just that. But in Christ, in Christ, he's taken us to the heights to know God 
And to be called the child of God is the greatest height to which any mortal being can be, can be, can be in, introduced. To know who God is through Jesus Christ, the Son. To know the power of His Spirit. We have been shown by faith the world to which we have been set free to minister to. And I don't think we should be pecking, but we should be soaring. Each of us has the, the capacity this morning, and I trust the challenge is there, for us to take some time and to examine our lives and say, am I just pecking out some kind of an existence? Am I living far below who I really am? And is it not time for me to, to spread my wings a little bit and fly? What work could I possibly be doing? What task could I probably undertake and do? Maybe something as simple as what Shannon spoke about this morning. Make a difference in the life of a child for one week during July this year. There are so many ways to serve God. Some of them are structured and they're inside of this local con con congregation. Many of them are outside. Some of them are with Celebrate Recovery. Some of them are with the food, food bank, which has a huge drive. Some of them are just being the kind of person who's there when someone else needs someone to talk with them and be the hand of God extended. There is no limit. But first, know who you are. Know the source of your power. And walk or fly in the power that God gives.